This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today joined by Dave Prentice and Adam Jones as chew the fat over all the major talking points at Goodison Park. And of course, preview Saturday night's game with Chelsea when, for the first time since March, believe it or not, of course. Uh, fans will be back inside the ground cheering the Blues on, hopefully to a much-needed positive result. Of course, so we'll pre- preview that game, bring you up to speed with the team news. Carlo Ancelotti doing his weekly pre-match press conference at Finch Farm this afternoon. Some news from that. Uh, we'll discuss formations, uh, personnel. Um, of course, we will discuss the fans' return, of course. And, and at this point last season, in this stage in December last season, of course, it was a different man in the dugout, wasn't it? It was Duncan Ferguson. Time has flown, hasn't it? So we'll get the lads' reflections on that period and whether some of the Duncan spirit and what he brought to the team is maybe what is needed at the moment. Um, Preno, um, just before we started, obviously, he uh, broke the news to you rather sadly that James Rodriguez will not be playing against Chelsea tomorrow night. Uh, a calf problem hasn't trained all week. Um We've had this discussion before, of course, because he has missed uh, he missed the Newcastle game, but uh, a big blow, but especially a big blow against a side of uh, Chelsea's calibre. It is, and given the fact that the personnel who are already missing that we know about as well, it does look like it's going to be a little bit of a, a makeshift and mend uh, team selection. I mean, we were discussing it before we started recording, and uh, no, we can't quite get our heads around. I mean, quite what he's going to do. I mean. I suggested that an obvious choice would be to switch Richarlison across to the right-hand side, uh, where he can do an equally as effective a job as he can on the left, and maybe give an opportunity for the lesser-spotted Anthony Gordon to come in and, uh, and show what he can do. Um, but you know, the, like, the likelier opportunity is that Bernard's going to be one side, and Iwobi we know can play that right-hand side role. But what do you do with the fullback positions then? Uh, because you know, obviously Seamus Coleman's still not available. I kind of hoped he would be this weekend, but it sounds like he isn't going to be. Luca Dean's obviously out for some considerable time. So lots and lots and lots of headaches and head scratching. So it's not just who replaces James Rodriguez. It's what part of that bigger jigsaw mm-hmm. uh, does his absence you know, sort of leave holes in. Um, it's a tricky one. And um, I, I can guarantee now that we're going to be surprised when we see the team sheet on Saturday night. So it'll be, wow, wasn't expecting that. Because there's so many different, you know, sort of, uh, permutations that the manager could select and as we know he's not one for going for the predictable option option most of the time mm. so uh, you know who replaces Hamas I don't know but in terms of quality you know he's irreplaceable really because he has that little indefinable something that we don't really have elsewhere in the squad so yeah it's going to be a very very interesting team sheet when that drops on Saturday night Adam given the um, you know the issue at right back and the lack of sort of obvious options that Preno has highlighted there do you is there a part of you, are you leaning towards the thinking that actually, despite the difficulties in playing the formation recently, Carlo may still actually keep three at the back? I have I have been thinking about this over the last like hour or so following that press conference. And it's, it, it does just, it just doesn't sit well with me still. I, I like, I, I, I see how it would make sense to keep playing three at the back because I think we've got, we've got the right options per se that can fit into it could fit into that, but I think only I'd only like to see that if we were going to be playing Nielsen Kunku as the left wing back. I think Alex Awobi, while he did very well as a right wing back, proved that he's not really capable of stepping up at left wing back for me. So who would we play in that left wing back position? I wouldn't be comfortable with Ben Godfrey playing there. 
because I don't think he offers the the you know attacking outlet that a left wing back needs to be making. I think he'd be much better suited to a left back role with a winger in front of him as he was against Burnley, and I think he played really well in that position then. So yeah, and I just don't think in my head that Carlo Ancelotti is going to call up Niels and Kunku because if he hasn't done it for the last few games, then what's going to prompt him to do it against a Chelsea team who we know we're probably going to be on the back foot against for most of this weekend's game. We're going to have to be defensively resolute. And if there's any questions at all about, you know, Niels and Kunku in terms of a defensive option, you know, obviously we've seen how well he can go forward, but we do still have some questions about how well he would cope defensively against the Premier League side. So is the safer option just going to be Ben Godfrey in a in a back four? I think that's probably about right. And then for a right back, you'd probably be looking towards, well, you'd, you think the obvious option would be John Joe Kenny, but it's it's very similar to Nkunku. If he's not been picked recently, then what's going to prompt it now? Maybe Tom Davis is going to step in at right back. I think he's I think he's more than capable of stepping up into that position, and I think he's probably deserving of some game time. I thought he played quite well against Leeds and was maybe a little bit unfortunate to be dropped against Burnley. So th- there are a couple of options there, but I just don't see how three at the back is going to work. To be honest, against Chelsea, I think Everton just needs to choose the option that's going to be a little more defensively resolute for them. And I think you know, just having a standard four at the back, but whether that's going to be a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3, I just think those, that four-man defence, we just look like we know what we're doing a little bit better in that system. So I go with that one. I, I was Just before you mentioned John Joe, um, I, I was going to say to Preno, he's the forgotten man in this discussion, Preno, isn't he? That it's taken, you know... Um, a lengthy answer from yourself and then well into Adam's answer about this whole situation before yeah. he even gets a mention. I mean, where, where is John Joe? I mean, we've spoke about him a lot recently. He's back at the football club. He went on season loan to Schalke. By all accounts, did very well. They loved him. That In an ideal world, they would have liked to have kept him. He was really well received by the supporters in a very, very good league. And you just can't get a look in him. He can't even get, you know, as you mentioned before we started recording, a bit like Uncanku, we can't even get in squad, and we've got problems at right back. I mean, yeah. we, I think, I think collectively on the pod and, and, and as a fan base, we've we've wanted it, it to be a success for John Joe Everson, but this, this, the signs are not looking very good, are they? No, I mean something happened that afternoon at Newcastle United that was beyond us, and you know, so probably escaped everybody else's attention. But you know, John Joe Kenny. He played that game, started that game, and was taken off after 76 minutes. And Konku started that game and was dragged off even earlier. And neither of them have been seen since, and um, not even in the squad. And if you think about how disappointing that afternoon was, you know, against a fairly ordinary Newcastle team, you just wonder, you know, are they the two that Carlo's got carrying the can, you know, for that result and that performance? Uh, I didn't notice anything obvious, but then again, I'm not, you know, a tactician who's. Uh, got the experience in the game that Carlo Ancelotti has, but you know clearly something happened that afternoon that he didn't like and he didn't appreciate uh, because neither of them have had a look in since, and he's tried all manner of permutations since then. But as you say, you know Tom Davis, Alex Iwobi, um, you know Ben Godfrey, people that aren't perfectly suited to play in that role have been asked to play there, as opposed to what you would call specialist, you know, sort of fullbacks. So whatever it was, he didn't like it. And um, as a result, we haven't seen you know either of them since. Now, Nkonku is different to Kenny in that you know, he's a young kid who was brought in initially to be part of the under-23 setup and has uh, impressed so spectacularly. He was fast-tracked into the first-team squad very, very quickly. Uh, so he's still got a future ahead of him. 
John Joe Kenny, though, is a different matter. I and mean, then he's had a fair bit of first team experience already. And as you say, he's had like a full season in the Bundesliga. And yet, Carlo doesn't include him, hasn't used him, which suggests there's something about his game that he's not particularly enthusiastic about. So it would be a surprise if he's suddenly involved uh, at the weekend. You know, I've, I've seen nothing to suggest he shouldn't be, but it looks like Carlo has. So, uh, it is going to be, like I said earlier, a really, really intriguing team sheet on uh, on Saturday night. I was thinking about this earlier and thinking, you know, Coleman's absence and how keenly it's been felt. Um, you know, Coleman has been at the football club a long time, 31, um, you know, has has been had an up and down period with injury. Last season played, you know, sort of shared shared sort of right back responsibilities with Sidibe for, for, a, for a, lot, a lot of part of the season. Um and and it feels, and you know, I don't think it's any great secret that, that Everton are looking for for a new right back and have been. You know, do you think it's an imperative that January or, or the next summer window we actually go and do find a, a right back that the manager, assuming it's 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 Carlo still in charge, hopefully at that point, can rely on or feels he can rely on and, and can play that player at right back if Coleman isn't available? Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely got to be the case because you know John Joe Kenny at the minute is the only backup specialist right back that we that we have at the club really isn't he apart from if you were going to go down into the youth setup and call somebody up so it, it it's just a real shame for John Joe that he hasn't been able to like you know as you said we we all love to see young scousers come up into the Everton team and you know try and try and uh, play their way into the squads but it's it's just not it's just not happened for Kenny despite how well he did a chalker, so that is a, a little bit of a shame, but I think it does just open the door for another player to come in. I think what what has really struck me about Coleman's absence over the last few weeks is that you know while Everton have lost, I think a bit of the defensive structure in moving to uh, a three at the back, I think they've also lost that little bit of leadership as well that Coleman does bring to the team. You know, I think people forget sometimes that he is the club captain, mm-hmm. and he is he is a I think he's a really good club captain. I think both other options. The pitch he represents the club really, really well, and I think we've been missing that kind of bite and energy that he does that he does bring to the role a little bit. So, you know, maybe that's why I'd like to see somebody like a Tom Davis come into that role. You know, who has captain the side before. Obviously, he's another young scouts lad that we all want to see do well. So perhaps if he if he can get into the uh, if he can get into the team in that way, then that would be uh, beneficial for him. But looking at January, I think it might be hard to find that kind of right back because. Mm. You, you ideally want it to be a long-term solution. You want them to, you want the clubs to find somebody of the right age who's, you know, you know, probably under under twenty-six at least. So you know, you've got still time to develop. You know, still needs to be a quality player. I just don't think you're going to find that value in January. So mm. whether whether we find a loan option maybe in January while John Joe Kenny finds a new club for himself, or whether we just keep up, keep Kenny and you know try and. Keep these makeshift options until the end of the season. I think it's going to be the summer where we're going to be looking for this option rather than January, which is a bit of a blow because obviously we would have wanted Kenny to have at least stepped up to that role for this season. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a bit challenge, I think. It's quite a good point Adam made there about the leadership because uh, yeah, I have to say I was a little bit staggered with a, a stat that Gavin threw in uh, in the um, podcast last week about we've had five games in succession where we've had a different captain. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and we've spoken before about, you know, so how 
a revolving captaincy always seems to indicate, you know, an unsuccessful season. I referenced the 97-98 campaign when Howard seemed to like, you know, so choose a different uh, captain every other week. But I don't think even he went down that, you know, a different skipper every match for five successive games. So it just underlines, uh, you know, the lack of obvious leaders and, you know, so obvious candidates for that role. Um, so, yeah, just another problem, you know, to be thrown into the mix. Um, you know, for the for the weekend, you know, not just with the personnel and you know who's going to play right back, but who actually leads the team out again. Um, Pran, just stay with you. Just just a final one on John Joe. We mentioned January and Adam. You know, r- rightly saying it's 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 a bit of an imperfect window, an opportunity yeah. to bring players in. But do you think John Joe will try and leave in January? I suppose it all depends on you know what kind of offers come in for him, but. He's got to be thinking about it, surely. Um, you know, if the, if the manager has made it clear that he's not really got much of a future under him, and you know, looking at the uh, the squads for the last you know sort of month or so, he's featured once in the last what eight matches. I know he had an injury, you know, so initially in that West Ham game, uh, but there's been lots of opportunities for him to have been involved, and he's not even been on the bench. Um, suggests that no, there's not really a long-term future for him. You would hope. That you know the manager is upfront enough with the player to have told him that and to have said that look you know I don't think it's got it's going to work for us here and we'll listen to offers for you because he's not using him so nothing to be lost you know as far as the club is concerned uh, but you know a young man's career you know so has stalled and so yeah I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was a interest shown in him in January if he did start to agitate for the move. The uh, the gremlins in the system have been uh, pushed aside, and Gav is now with us. That's never to talk about Gavin. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, not the first, not the first time me and gremlins have been mentioned in the same sentence. To be fair, thank, thank God it's not after midnight. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. A late run into the podcast box, Gav. Uh, very welcome to join us. The uh, thank the you. Convers- the, 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 in summary, so far the conversation has been. How difficult it will be again in the absence of James Rodriguez, who's got a calf problem and hasn't trained, yeah. so will not play against Chelsea. And we've moved on to the right back situation, discussing a number of possible permutations at who may play right right back because Coleman again will be missing. Um, and the, the last person on that list, rather tellingly in the discussion, was John Joe, and we were discussing yeah. whether what his options are. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do, you, do you look at John Joe's situation and do you think that John Joe will be looking at January and be seeing that as a way, a possible way out, even if it's on loan? Absolutely. Um, he's not really nailed, an, nailed anything down at he, all year and before he went on loan. I think the attraction for the club is to be permanent sailors, being an academy graduate, as it were. It, you know, constantly got our annual report coming up, haven't we? Now, this feeds into next year, is any cash that they get will be well-received as well, wouldn't it, really? So mm. it might be to the club's benefit to sell John Joe if he's not, you know, if, not, if he's not getting game time, the club needs to raise cash. It's surely in the best interest of all concerned for John Joe to to go, mm. uh, to be honest with you. And um, I, I couldn't see the club standing in his way, or Carlo standing in his way either. Um, and that would appear to be the best you know, the best solution. Uh, you know, but as I think Adam was saying there about difficulties in January, so you may be the summer, perhaps, mm. but he, he doesn't appear to have a future here, does he, with all due respect yeah. to him for, for whatever reason that is. So surely the best for all parties, for, you know, financially for Everton, 
career-wise for John Joe for them to move on. Uh, just sticking with you, Gav, how would you go at the right-back situation then um, to, tomorrow night <laughs> against Chelsea? Um, I was in Cecil one national newspaper today, Paul Holgate's a right-back, okay. um, which is an interesting one. Um, I think we've got to play it back four, haven't we? We can't play it back three, please. Um, <laughs> we, we, were saying that. We, were, we, we were saying that, Gav, but Prenner rightly points out that, that Carlo is nothing but if, if unpredictable in his team selection yeah. of late. And it really, yeah. is difficult, really is difficult to rule that out, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just wondering whether... Just wondering whether Hammers not playing helps that way. Maybe if you play 3-4-3, three, three, that means you've got extra cover on the right when Hammers drifts in. Mm. If Hammers is not playing, you don't need that extra, you know, wide player in the four in the middle. You know, like Wobie's played wide, wide, wide right, hasn't he? Yeah. To provide cover if... If Hamas goes goes inside, if Hamas is not playing, then you don't have that problem. So it's probably saying you know, an easier fit to have three in the middle. Uh, depends on what you want to play three or front then. But uh, I would say that supports playing the back four. You've got to. I think again in Chelsea, you've got you know with their attack and strength and their variety going forwards. I think you said that back four, just to buttress the defence a bit, is, is surely the way. Way. You play like back is a different thing. I mean, I think Holgate is possibly an option. Godfrey is an option again. Um, but would you probably play for left back? He's had a bit mixed start, hasn't he, really, in terms of his defensive duties? I mean, I mean a back four, a Walter Smith type back four of Holgate, Keane, Mina, and Godfrey is not necessarily <laughs> out of the equation here, is it really? It's not yeah. a bad shout, to be honest. Yeah, against twenty-five gold Chelsea, they're uh, they're flying, aren't yeah. they? But, yeah, yeah. I think so, that's could be. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. At this point, twelve months ago, at this point in the season, Adam, we knew that the formation was going to be four-four-two. Duncan had come in, replaced Marco Silva, ditched four-two-three-one, gone for four-four-two. The performances were all about energy, a monumental number of tackles against Chelsea in the first game, a great victory, points at a point at United and a point at home to Arsenal. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of amazing, really. That it feels like it's come round so quickly. What what are your sort of abiding memories of Duncan's uh, caretaker spell? Oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? Because I mean, he wasn't without his selection issues either. Obviously, he had to play Mason Holgate as a centre mid against mm. Manchester United. I think he had a little spell in the League Cup game against uh, Leicester in centre mid as well and you know he performed pretty well in that position thanks to you know a number of injuries and illnesses or whatever that you know a number of our midfielders had but yeah I think Duncan Ferguson just ended up being the absolute right choice for that interim spell because we know what he's all about he is all about passion for the club isn't he and that's exactly what Everton fans thought was lacking at the time you know we just had that really demoralising defeat to Liverpool, and it just it, it it felt like one of the lowest ebbs in you know even in the club's recent history, which has been you know fairly fairly disappointing to say the least. So to to try and revive and you know spark spark that energy in the club again, it needed somebody who was just all about all about the passion, all about getting the fans back on side. And you know for that game against Chelsea, nobody was as going to inspire Goodison Park more than Duncan Ferguson being in that dugout. 
you know, with the short time span that we had, Duncan was the man to do it. And you know, I think his antics on the touchline were just as just as important as the uh, those tackles and goals on the pitch. To be honest, because it did it did make Evertonians fall in love a little bit with the team again, and you know, it gave them the belief that yeah, these these lads can pull together for each other and they can, you know, work hard and you know just grind out results even against the biggest teams in the league. And it it set a really good base for Carlo Ancelotti to then come in as well, didn't it? Because he, he came in and he said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to change this system at the minute because the, the players are playing for it. They're, they're doing well in that role. So I think Duncan Ferguson deserves a real amount of credit, you know, considering when he was, when it was first touted that he would be getting the interim job. Yeah, I did see a lot of supporters, you know, very iffy on the situation, thinking to themselves, oh, what, what credentials has he got uh, to be taking that role? Well, the only credential I think that he needed was the passion for the club because that was exactly what we needed for just that for just that short window. And I think he was he was absolutely perfect. And you know he, he didn't get he didn't get all wins, but I think he did he did enough to to lay a foundation for Ancelotti and spark something again, which is exactly what Everton needed at the time. And Preno, I think, and Duncan talks about this himself. You know, he he's. He was acutely aware of, of 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 the sort of question marks over him as a coach, and actually his coaching ability and tactical acumen. He was aware of that discussion before he took charge, but rightly felt that he proved a lot of people wrong and proved to people during that that three league game and that cup game with Leicester that actually he he knows very much what he's doing in the dugout. Oh yeah, very much. So I'm quite intrigued by the fact that he got that role because he spoke to board members on the Friday afternoon and said, "This was my plan." Should I be the manager? I'm going to go two up top. I'm going to give Carvert Lewin a partner. Uh, I'm going to, you know, foot forward the back four four two, and that was like enthusiastically embraced. I think it was it Bill Kenwright said, right, come and tell Farhad that. Come and tell Farhad that, and uh, that was how you know he ended up, you know, so sort of getting the job in the interim basis. And I just wonder, you know, what they're thinking now when they're seeing three at the back, you know, sort of rolled out on a couple of occasions because clearly four four two is quite a popular formation, and it worked wonderfully then. Um, I don't know about you know that you know huge level of tactical acumen that was required because uh, it was all about passion. I mean, uh, some of the stories we've heard about uh, you know the the messages being relayed to the players on the touchline certainly at Old Trafford. Um, you know, it was all about getting out there and making nuisances of yourself and you know sort of showing absolutely everything. And Frank Lampard, you know, basically accepted that on the uh, on the you know the afternoon when Everton played Chelsea, where he said it's the wrong afternoon to face Everton. You know, sort of got. Duncan Ferguson in the dugout, you know, so a huge crowd behind them. Um, so I think he'll fancy his chances a lot more uh, this weekend. My overriding memory, of course, though, is Howard Kendall's watch. You know, yeah. so that, that lovely link, you know, so with the past. I mean, Howard and Duncan were very, very close. And it was lovely to see that. And it just underlined, you know, the passion that, you know, Duncan has for the football club. And yes, you know, he, he disproved an awful lot, proved an awful lot of people wrong. Uh, that afternoon and it wasn't just that afternoon because it was a little spell of like really really tough fixtures mm. and I mean Leicester gave it a run around in that League Cup game but he still managed to change things around to a degree in the second half where we somehow got back into it and then ended up you know losing on penalties and then Old Trafford again like you mentioned earlier Mason Holgate in centre midfield you know but it worked uh, it was Arsenal as well you know so you got a draw again so yeah you know it was um it was it was a very very uh, well-received cameo and arguably one of the high points of last season. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's why Duncan Ferguson is still there now, you know, because he's got an awful lot to offer the football club 
and uh, he proved it on a number of occasions in that little spell. Mm. Sadly, I think that'd be very different on Saturday night. <laughs> Not <Right. least> <laughs> <laughs> Gav, is, is a bit of that Duncan fire and a bit of that Duncan passion needed on Saturday because it feels like we will be up against it and we will come on to the ret- we will come on to the return of fans but obviously we don't have yeah, yeah. Of, a, of a full I think if this was 39,000 sellouts this is this is the sort of game and this is sort of the situation and circumstance where you go actually quite fancy us but it's it, the circumstances are not quite as perfect as we would have, have hoped yeah, I know you talk about fans later. My my bad memory, but I think Duncan actually proved a few people wrong, didn't he? Like I thought he was quite cute on a few occasions. My bad memory of him was at Old Trafford's where Holger came on and warmed up at the back. Yeah, yeah. and then sprinting. and then plays in midfield. <laughs> yeah, but I just thought that was quite a cute move for some reason. You know, it's why it's would it's you it's think that? Yeah, it's the old boxer you know, coming out from the corner southpaw, but then going orthodox or something. Yeah, yeah, I just I, and the whole game played very well. To be honest, we had one of his best games for Everton. To be to be fair, and and I think Duncan showed that he was a little bit. It was it was, was obviously always going to be passionate, but there was a little bit to his management style and his his thought process that was probably a surprise to a lot of people, including Evertonians. I would imagine probably including me in that. Um, so. I'm just thinking that we've got the same four fixtures now, haven't we, this year? It's what we had last year. Same nice. four teams. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. So, we got a win in three draws last year. Didn't we probably set up for that this year, wouldn't we, with the maybe the win against Man U or something like that? Yeah, no, I think, I think he's still there. I think, as you say, it's going to be different on Saturday. Um, because of the, the absence of the crowd. But, yeah, yeah, I thought he did well for us, Duncan. Absolutely. Um, Adam, as we as we said, 2,000 supporters will be back inside Goodison on Saturday for the first time since March the 1st when we played Manchester United. Um, you know, it's 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 not 39,000, sadly, but it's two. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's more than we've had for a long time. Um, how much difference can, can those 2,000 make? I like to think in my optimistic mind that they can make a lot of difference. I think, you know, obviously the restrictions at the minute mean that some of them are going to be in the top balcony, which I don't think is an ideal scenario. I think that, you know, obviously we'd like to have had them in the park end or, you know, in the in the lower bowlands even or something like that. I think that would have been able to generate a bit more of an atmosphere closer to the pitch. But I think in general, you know, I don't think you can you can discount the effect that 2,000 fans can have. I think of the game that I saw from last weekend that probably had the most effect was Tottenham in the North London derby. I think they were their fans were very loud. Obviously, it was a huge occasion for them to have the North London derby as their first game back. But you know their fans made a count. I think, and you know, it, I think it really helped the side uh, to make as as good a start as they did in that game. And you know, I'm I'm hoping that there can be the same effect for for Everton because everybody's going to have. Everybody on the pitch is going to have a good feeling that there are at least some fans cheering them on. Obviously, the fans are going to be delighted to be back in the stadium, and I've got no doubt that they'll be absolutely singing their hearts out uh, right right from the off. So I think that you've just got to implant as much doubt in the Chelsea minds as possible. There's going to be no Chelsea fans there, of course, so it's just 2,000 Evertonians cheering them on. So fingers crossed it can make some sort of, some sort of effect, but obviously you're counting down the days until you can get you know, four thousand, eight thousand. It's 
just build up the amount of fans you can have in there because it's it, it's just been it's been far too long since you know March last time we had almost forty thousand fans inside Goodison. It just seems it's just so long ago, and it, it still seems a, a bit of a distance away that we're going to get to that stage again. But fingers crossed, uh, we're, we're taking the right steps now. Brenda, it was mentioned at Carlos' press conference that rather remarkably for Alan uh, Decore and Ben Godfrey, it'll be the first time they've played in front of a crowd since joining Everton. <laughs> I know, it's horrible, isn't it? Because, you know, certainly in the early part of the season, we were so desperate for the supporters to let you know players like that know how well-received they've been mm. and, you know, so what popular additions to the squad they've been. And uh, the best we could do is hand a bottle of Echo Force to James Rodriguez outside the Royal Oak. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so we wanted to get that message across to them and uh, we've not been able to. Under normal circumstances, I would say that having just 2,000 in the stadium could even be counterproductive. It's like eerie. You know, it, it's not like a real situation. But given the fact that the players have been performing in this like really eerie situation for the last uh, three or four months, I think it will help a little. Only a little, mind. You know, it's not going to intimidate officials. It's not going to intimidate Chelsea. Uh, Frank Lampard's not going to have the problem of, you know, sort of Chelsea players... Uh, you know, not traumatised by, you know, sort of 39,000 snarling Everton crowd, but, you know, certainly apprehensive about it. Uh, they're not going to have that at all. But it might just help a fraction, you know, with the Everton players who are out there, knowing that there's a few supporters in there, uh, you know, sort of cheering them on. It's a, it's a tiny step in the right direction. And I don't think we'll actually really be able to appreciate it properly until, what would they say, in autumn, before we actually can start maybe seeing, you know, some, something like, you know, real crowds back in football grounds. But, you know, it's a, it's a tentative step in the right direction. Mm. Gav, uh, the club um, have fully embraced the um, suggestion from sort of Public Health Liverpool that, that, te- that testing is mandatory to, for, um, for entrance into Goodison. If, you, if you're on a lucky 2000 to get a ticket, you have to get a test and return a negative test. Um, and obviously that's, you know, done with all the sort of the right intentions there has been we've certainly noticed on social media one or two supporters saying well what happens if i return an, a, a positive test i've then got to go and self-isolate and may mean i have to miss work i would you know i'd much rather not go to the game while we have to have to have testing in place so I mean, where where would you stand if you if you got one of the tickets it's a really it's a really, <laughs> di- it's a really difficult yeah. situation and i think ultimately you know the wider public it's, health has to come first. And that's why yeah, doing it. But, it, but it's just really difficult for, for to please everybody at this moment. It is. I, I agree. I mean, there's there's probably supporters who probably I was I was thinking about this. I don't know how many people actually apply for the ballot, but probably supporters who thought like I don't really want to over Saturday night. I don't want to stand with two thousand people. You know, we're not. You pay forty quid or whatever for the ticket to stand with forty thousand is one thing. 40 quid for stand with 2,000 and there's persons five yards away. It's a completely different experience, isn't it? Uh, but you, you guys have been there in an empty stadium. You, you know what it's like better than better than me. Though I wasn't there, there in the early 80s when it was empty. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's lots, of, there's, there's lots of different reasons, isn't it? There's always been... I've been surprised as like that on this, just generally speaking about that this massive some of that people are in a massive rush to go back to football grounds. The people I speak to are not necessarily like that at the moment. Because they've got their own family wishes as well. For people you know, I was talking to my wife about it last week and she thinks she doesn't speaking as a non football fan, that people shouldn't go. <laughs> they should, mm. you know, 
Yeah, you're never um, there, aren't you, Gav? Yeah. So that, that's why you're yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> but yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots of things fall about this that actually, it, you know, that why people won't go. You know, and I think testing maybe, but that's the risk. Do you want to go? How, how much do you really want to go with the game? You yeah. know, what's likely to be testing positive and and stuff. So I, I we have spoken about this a couple of times on the pod previously. There's so many different parameters here. You 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 hesitate if you thought of it all, wouldn't it? Even before you decide where people are sitting on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's part. But what it is though, it's part. You know, Fano said about this. It's part of the baby steps of getting to next autumn and getting forty thousand. You have to go through this process. I mean, and the good thing about football, which I think maybe people doubted in June, is there's been one or two things. But football has done it pretty much perfectly, hasn't it? By the book. In terms of hosting games, testing players, all that type of thing, has gone as far as I can see, pretty well. And this is part of the, I wouldn't say cleansing process. This this is part of the process of getting everybody into a stadium at some point in in the future. And there's going to be little foibles, little quirks, isn't it? And and I, I think um, it's just part of you know it's part of the 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 process of getting everybody back. And there will be like little, you know, little things that may may don't don't work properly, but that's why we're doing it, aren't we? You can't go from north to forty thousand, can you? In it, yeah, absolutely. you know, next to awesome. You've got to go from two, four, ten, fifteen, etc. Yeah, this is part of that process. I mean, football at the moment with two thousand in is a very anaesthetized experience, and people go to a match for lots of different reasons. Obviously, to watch those ninety minutes and see, you know, your heroes performing on the pitches, like the primary purpose. But there's also, you know, just the buzz of being part of a crowd around the match on match days, going up to St. Luke's Church to visit, you know, the stalls upstairs, going for a pint before the game. Um, you know, there's just so much that is involved in going to a football match. And that's all being taken away at the moment. Uh, so all you actually physically have is the experience of walking into a very eerily deserted ground and obviously areas that you wouldn't normally be in as well, uh, with nobody around you that you would normally have around you. And then watching the product in front of you, and then you know, sort of leaving afterwards. I'm sure you two guys who had to be reporting on the games will have noticed a very different experience as well, because you've had to have you know all kinds of uh, rules and regulations placed upon you. You know, sort of tests before games, sitting in strange parts of the ground with nobody near you, not able to talk to anybody, and even the post-match interview situation completely mm-hmm. different. Uh, so it is. It's a completely surreal situation now. So. I take what Gavin was saying earlier, absolutely on board, that you know, people do have a, a big you know, sort of question to answer. Do they really want to go to that strangely anesthetized experience or would they rather wait until things are a lot more back to normal than they are? Uh, it's a very, very strange world we're living in at the moment. And, you know, so all parts of life uh, are affected quite dramatically, you know, so not least professional football matches. Adam, obviously, we, we don't know how many people have been involved in the ballot, actually, but I know you know some people who've got tickets. Do, do you speak to people? Have you spoken to people... You'd be relished the opportunity to get back, and you couldn't actually wait to get back in the ground. Or, yeah, to be, to be honest, one one of my cousins is one of the people who's who's got a ticket, and he, he was a very last minute last minute decision for him to go into the ballast. I think he was saying, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, he was like, oh, "I'm not going to bother, I'm not going to bother." And then it just got to the point where you know he it was coming up to the deadline, and he just thought, "Ah, I, I just really love going to Goodison <laughs> at the end of the day." You know, it, there is something missing. From my weekend routine without going and you know he applied and he and he did get himself in so yeah i think that that is just 
something that sticks in the fans' mind. You know, it is it is just part of a weekend weekend routine. You know, as Prano says, it's not it's not the full whack. You know, you don't get to go for the pint with your mates. You don't get to go to St Luke's or you know go to the Chippies or whatever uh, before or after the games. But you know, it, it's still it's still going and supporting your team, which is something that you did take for granted until this year, didn't you? And it, it it's been it's been ripped away from supporters who you know who would. You know, we know Everton fans are just so passionate about the team. You know, to have that taken away from them in the large majority of cases is just is is really detrimental to a lot of people. So I think there have been a lot of people who are just <laughs> really excited to get back into the stadium, and they'll do you know whatever it takes, whether you know testing beforehand, you know getting the temperature t- checks, and you know do, going through all the rigmarole safety safety stuff to to get themselves in the seat. And I think this is ju- this really just should be looked at as like a a test phase almost with two thousand fans just to see if the if the new systems around Goodison really work because as Gav quite rightly said you know you can't go from north to forty thousand you have mm. got to you have got to try and build up from this from this lower sort of platform so hopefully Everton can prove with this weekend and you know maybe a few weeks in the future as well that you know they can easily do this with two thousand fans you know this is. These systems are in in place. They're robust. They're very they're really safe. They're effective. So fingers crossed, these fans can come in, have a great time at the game, do it all safely, and then in a few weeks we'll be able to we'll be able to ramp up the numbers that little bit more. Like that's that's the hope, of course. Mm. And, uh, and the club and, and certainly um, public health officials in the city are making it are making no secret of the fact that they're they're wanting to be able to push government into allowing. You know the two clubs in the city to have more than two thousand in, and, and and want these next few games to go as smoothly as possible. But Gav, actually, just as the last one on this, um, the club have also said, look, they're currently restricted to using two stands: the Gladys Street upper and lower, and the top balcony. They've actually said that when we get to a stage where we're getting more fans, I'm not sure the number, but obviously four, eight, ten, it will actually need to be reconfigured because of the 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 reason the Bullens is out of out of bounds is because of the size of the concourse. It just does not allow for social distancing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what I'm saying. It's it, it's it's um, you're going. It, there's a lot more to it than just saying. Can we just put eight thousand people in the stadium? It's great, you know, we've got forty thousand. Brilliant. There's all sorts of rules and regulations you've you've got to adhere to, as you say. I mean. This is where I'm not. I'm not sure about some of the other grounds because Goldison is part of this. It's just an oldie, worldy ground, and actually, in this era, and this is what we're talking about, it does it actually, you know, does it help? I think it probably doesn't um, in terms of stadium comfort. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it, it will be it'll be be a bit bit mad, won't it? You you would imagine that that they'll end up in the in, in the three corners, three three parts of the ground, wouldn't they really? It's it's going to be difficult. I mean, it may it might be interesting. Not I'm not just talking about Evan here. We'll we'll I'm saying going from north to forty, from going ten, two to ten, say or something like that. Would some grounds be able to have ten in, even if you got thirty thousand seats? Because of the, some of the issues that you're talking about there, Phil. It's not yeah. easy, is it? Is what you what you think? There may be just natural restrictions in the ground, which means you can't have more. While there's a restricted environments you can't have more than say ten thousand in even though you've got thirty thousand seats forty thousand seats and uh you know that may apply to everyone i'm not sure but there'll be some grounds would be better suited to this 
or not, you know. And I, as you said before, outside the ground as well, within the stadium, you know, just yeah. outside the ground might come into it. So the, the whole lot, it's an enormously complicated thing, this isn't even before you select who's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I know, what a headache, yeah. No, and they, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's been a monumental sort of, uh, say, project, but uh, sort of task to undertake, isn't it, in the last sort of eight or nine months for, for, for Everton and, and every football club. But, uh, Okay, so uh, final part of today's pod before we we call it a day is obviously customary predictions and a little, little bit of chat about the challenge Chelsea will pose as Preno. Um, scoring for fun, look like that sort of multi-million pound squad that was put together over the summer is starting to sort of look like it's clicking, although it is a, a bit of an old boy, Olivier Giroud, seems to be banging form at the moment. Um, what's What are you expecting tomorrow night and, and what's your prediction? I'm uh, deeply, deeply apprehensive. Um, I was looking at Chelsea's results uh, yesterday because yeah, I had the impression that they'd you know had a little wobble here and there. I saw the game against West Brom, you know, where they struggled. You know, they were three goals down. I'm thinking about you know, so twenty odd minutes. Remember the game in which Liverpool beat them, you know, so early on, and there's a couple of draws in there. So I looked at their record, and it's phenomenal. That that Liverpool defeat is the only defeat this season. Um, you know, they've uh, they've just like gone from strength to strength. That West Brom game. It was early on in the season and it was very out of character. Uh, the new players are bedded in quickly. They're getting a bit of momentum up and uh, it just seems to be developing ahead of steam. So it would be a fixture that would have concerned me at the best of times. But when we've got two massively influential figures like Seamus Coleman and Lucas Dean missing, when you've got our most creative force also on the sidelines and James Rodriguez, I'm concerned. Uh, I'm not so concerned that I'm going to predict a defeat that is not allowed on this podcast we can't do that um, so anybody that buys you know a copy of the Echo sees that I do the predictions for the pools and uh, can possibly if you're reading between the lines uh, see that I'm a little bit concerned about this because I've only gone for a draw I've gone for a I've gone for a 2-2 draw because we're not going to keep a clean sheet absolutely no way on God's earth um, you know so we can't keep clean sheets at home to Leeds or away at Burnley um, so, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to see us keeping a clean sheet this weekend. Whether we can, you know, sort of be reasonably robust and, you know, keep Chelsea out to a reasonable degree and create chances at the other end, which we are doing. We are, we are scoring goals. So I'm going, I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to go for 2-2. But I'm going to be 100% honest and say that it does concern me. Um, you know, it's a fixture that we need a 39,000 gate in there to try and motivate people and to try and intimidate Chelsea and to try and get a real, you know, sort of up and up and kind of attitude there. We're not going to have that. So it's going to be heavily reliant on the qualities of two, you know, sort of different sets of footballers. And at the moment, Chelsea have got far more quality than us and far more depth, more importantly, than us. So I'm going for a draw with my fingers and toes crossed. Adam? <laughs> yeah, I think Preno makes a really good point about Chelsea's quality because I was thinking to myself oh, earlier in the week, Frank Lampard ruled out Hakim Ziyech from this game, mm. and I was thinking to myself, "Oh, that'll be that'll be a boost for us." But it just means that Christian Pulisic is going to come into the side <laughs> instead. So, it, you know, he's he's just as good in my opinion. So it, it's still going to be it's still going to be really difficult, as you rightly said. They they're scoring goals for fun at the minute, but you know, I I, I still do just think to myself, I, I am an optimistic person, and I think to myself, if we can if we can get get ourselves a solid back four. And if we can, if we can choose the right person to replace Hammers, I think Richarlison might have a good game this weekend. And predicting that he might 
he might step up to the mark. I mean, Calvert-Lewin's banging goals in for fun himself, so you've always got to back him to score. Uh, I think I think right. We're not going to keep a clean sheet because I, I just can't see that happening from now until the end of the season. To be honest, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm to win. I, 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 th- I think we might win two one. Two one. That's oh, what we want to hear. And we know how good Adam is on the predictions. Predict yeah. No, no, not recently. I've, I've been awful because I keep predicting wins. <laughs> Gav, how do you see it going? Uh, I puffed my cheek out, cheeks out when you said to do the prediction because I'm in Preno's uh, corner there. I think it's going to be a really, really difficult game. Yeah. Uh, also with that, that we're going to have to defend well. Also also with that, I think it needs a good game for Richarlison tomorrow, don't we? No, Hammers. He's been... Yeah. Underperforming, I would say, since he come back, um, one or two really good things he's done, um, but underperforming for me. We need him to have a really good game, but I just can't see us winning. Um, I'm going to do my normal bottle job in these circumstances and go for a one-all draw, Phil. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, but I think you know, I think uh, as Preno alludes to, anybody listening to the pod saying that when we pick, when we pick draws out of game. There's a good chance that we're actually fearful of something worse, aren't we? But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think the higher that sorry Phil, I think the higher the draw, the more more beaten you go, you think you're going to get, you know, yeah. Preno take note. Yeah, I think I think what I need to do is actually have a bet on Chelsea to win because my betting record is abysmal, and so yeah, yeah if, yeah, if I get that it. wrong, you know, that, that's a, I'll be delighted to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Chas. Well, let's hope Adam uh, Adam's got this one right and uh, us three are wrong on this. So uh, a tough game in store, no doubt. Two thousand fans back, and hopefully they can uh, prove a difference. Although it'd be tough, won't well, it, all round um, tomorrow night? Chaps, thank you very much for your company. Great stuff as always, and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.